Please remain standing as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them first be tested, then, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Women likewise must be serious, not slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be married only once, and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. He was revealed in flesh, indicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Brad, thank you so much for reading our lesson, and uh, greetings, peace to you in the name of Christ. Uh, thank you to Shelby and Mason, uh, to our praise team, and as always, our production team, and to all of you who are in person with us. It's so good to be with you in God's house today. And those of you who are online, as Shelby has already welcomed you, it's a great joy uh, to be in the presence of Christ with you, and we welcome you. It's an honor to be with you in your homes. I, I think this is the first Sunday in six weeks that we've had sun out, and it's wonderful uh, to see the sun come out on a sunny Sunday, Sabbath day, and to be with you in worship. Uh, we are right in the middle of this series called Love Uncontaminated, and we're working our way through what we call one of the pastoral epistles, uh, which is one of three letters uh, in the New Testament. There are three letters that we call pastoral epistles. They are different from the other letters that Paul wrote in this regard. Most of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament were written to entire congregations, communities. But there are three letters that are very personal. They are earmarked for young, struggling pastors that Paul has mentored and then sent into communities. In this particular letter, 1 Timothy, Timothy is serving in a place called Ephesus, which is a strategic city for a church in Asia Minor, which today is on the west coast of Turkey. I visited there, the ancient ruins of Ephesus, 
And it was to this community that young Timothy was sent by Paul to continue the work of the kingdom that Paul had started there when he initiated the movement. And so over the last three weeks, we've been looking at Paul's counsel to struggling Timothy, which I think is very applicable to us, particularly in the age in which we live. In the first two chapters, Paul advises Timothy about three things. First of all, to persevere in his leadership, to stay put where he is. We call it stick-to-itiveness uh, a couple of weeks ago. The second thing he mentions is that Timothy is to provide sound teaching, that not only is he to stick to it in terms of where he lives, but also that he's to stick to the message of the gospel. And then last week, we talked about the necessity of being persistent in prayer and not just praying for my people or my group or those who agree with me, but praying especially for those who would even oppose us. Uh, specifically, uh, Paul says, pray for rulers and authorities. And we know that at the time that the first century church was living in, the authorities, the governing authorities were very opposed to the movement. But in the chapter, Brad, that you've just read for us today, Paul turns his attention, his focus to leadership. Leadership for the church certainly in the mind of Paul, was not simply about doctrine. Leadership was about conduct. It was about behavior. In fact, in one of the last verses, Brad, that you read, Paul says, and I quote, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how you should behave or conduct yourselves in God's household. In Paul's day, church leadership was relatively unstructured and largely dependent on the spontaneous guidance of the Holy Spirit. But as time went by, as the years passed, it was clear that if the movement of the way, if the Christian movement was to be sustained, then some structure and organization would be necessary. Now, I don't know about you, but I often hear people say something like this to me. The reason that I don't attend church or I'm not online is I'm not really into organized religion. And I think to myself, well, you've never been in some of my churches because I, I wouldn't always describe them as being very organized. Sometimes it's very messy, but I'll tell you what I've discovered in almost 39 years of ministry. I, I've discovered that organized religion is better than disorganized religion. It's clear in the scripture, isn't it, that God is not a God of confusion. God is not a God of chaos, it's clear in creation itself, as you look at the beauty of the earth today, that creation itself is an organic design that has symmetry, that has equilibrium, that has order. In fact, in another letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 14, he says, and I quote, God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. But I think, and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, you've been wrong before, but the problem with organized religion is that sometimes we devote more attention to the structure than we do to the Savior. That's the problem. Sometimes we devote more attention to the organization than we do to the one that the organization professes and represents. 
Nonetheless, I believe that organization is vital. That's why we have a finance committee. That's why we count the offering. That's why we count online attendance and in-person attendance because specific organization guidelines are necessary for the sustainability of the movement. And so in this text, Paul gives us certain guidelines for spiritual leaders. And by the way, I know that we talked about bishops and deacons, right? And the bishop will be here. Our bishop will be here to preach next week. And you have my permission to hold him accountable for what we just read. But this list of attributes is not just for clergy. This list of attributes is for all who seek to serve the body of Christ, the household of faith. In fact, there's a reason that one of our core values as a church at Brentwood is the ministry of all believers, the priesthood of all believers. Every person who confesses Jesus as Lord, there's a ministry, there's a mission with your name on it. Every disciple has a gift to share and a role to play in the body of Christ. And yet, we need some clergy. Now, not many, of course, but we need clergy. I was rereading a piece recently that was put out by the Menninger Foundation, which is a psychiatric clinic in Houston. And I was reading a quote by Dwayne Swenson about ministry. Listen to this. If I wanted to drive a manager up the wall, I would make him responsible for the success of an organization and give him no authority. I would provide her with unclear goals not commonly agreed on within the organization. I would ask him to provide a service of an ill-defined nature, applying a body of knowledge having few absolutes, and give her only volunteers for assistance. I would expect him to work 10 to 12 hours a day and have his work evaluated by a committee of 500 people. I would call him a minister and make him accountable to God. Now, I don't care much for that job description, But the real job description for spiritual leaders, ironically, is in another letter that Paul wrote, not to Timothy in Ephesus, but to the Ephesians sometime before the pastoral epistles. Here's the job description for a spiritual leader. Christ himself gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service shall be mentioned the mission opportunities, so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I noticed I've italicized the words built up. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's the Greek word for edification. And I've noticed sometimes in our postmodern culture, we're much more proficient at tearing down than building up. But that's the job description for a spiritual leader, to build one another up so that we might have cohesion and a sense of maturity. Now, in the text we read, there are two emerging offices in the text. One is an elder, which in the Greek is episkopos. It means bishop, pastor, shepherd, or overseer. And the other office is of a deacon, which is Greek for diakonos, 
and it literally just means servant. Paul lists the necessary attributes for the role of a spiritual leader. Now, I'm gonna quote from the common English Bible, what you've already read, because I think it says it in in a more modern way. This is what God is looking for in terms of spiritual leaders. Faithful to one spouse, sober, that's helpful, modest, honest, hospitable, skilled in teaching, not addicted to alcohol, not a bully, gentle, peaceable, not greedy, manages one's own household well, kids are respectful, not unruly, not a new convert, reputable to outsiders, dignified, not two-faced or hypocritical, and being confident in their faith. That rules me out, how about you? I mean, when I read that, it occurs to me that is a lot to live up to, and it sounds more like something to shoot for than something you've already attained. But that's the character of a servant, of a shepherd. This is the conduct becoming of spiritual leadership, and you don't have to be ordained to do it. Spiritual authority flows not out of titles or positions, but from a life that is authentic and genuine. Now, what's interesting to me is that many of these social virtues that Paul mentions are similar to those that are expected in first century of civic and military leaders in the Hellenistic world. In fact, one first century philosopher whose name was Onasander lists the qualities of a good general. Listen to this, it's very similar. Temperate, self-controlled, vigilant, frugal, hardened to labor, in other words, good work ethic, alert, free from greed, not too young, not too old, a father of children if possible, a ready speaker, and a person of good reputation. Some of the same qualities required of spiritual leaders, according to Paul, are also required of secular leaders. So these attributes that are spelled out by Paul are also relevant to their Greco-Roman context. This is important to note because it was rumored in first century Rome that the church was somehow subversive and seditious towards the empire, and that is completely false. The fact is the same qualities that make for a good church make for a good home, make for a good city, make for a good state, make for a good nation, and yet it's the purpose behind our character that is distinct. For the disciple, for the spiritual leader, it isn't first of all, we we don't conduct ourselves in this way first of all in order to please the emperor or the state or the government. We do it in order to glorify God, to build up one another, and to increase the witness of the church, which Paul says is the pillar of truth. 
Now, I want to pause it there for just a moment while we're talking about leadership, because last week, if you were here, we read 1 Timothy 2, and you may have noticed that we skimmed over a section of the second half of 1 Timothy 2, that bit about women in the church. This is in chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. No woman should teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Well, now that all the air is out of the room, let me explain why we didn't read that passage last week. We didn't read it because I couldn't find a lay reader who was willing to read it. But it's in the Bible. And so the question is, are we being unbiblical? My goodness, Shelby Slowey is one of our clergy. Are we being unbiblical today by not adhering to this particular verse? Did Paul intend that verse to be a perpetual and eternal principle for the church? Well, if he did, we're out of line. But I think a little context might be helpful. At this point in the life of the church in the first century, there were no sanctuaries, there were no church buildings, there was no institution, there was no pope or bishop at this point, there was no infrastructure. But worship took place in homes, right? And the household rules within Roman culture operated by a concept called paterfamilias, which literally means the father is head of the household. And so the oldest living male in the family had ultimate authority over the entire estate. And so initially, house churches operated by this model, pater familias. Because if word gets to the emperor that the concept pater familias is being displaced, the Romans would have wiped out the entire movement. But as the gospel begins to flourish, there is evidence in the New Testament that women are leading too. Romans 16 says Phoebe was a deacon, a deaconess as it's called. In Philippi, there was a fashion designer named Lydia who became the first convert to the Christian faith and the lay leader in Macedonia. And in fact, her house became the parsonage for Paul and Silas. Priscilla, who was the wife of Aquila, was known on one occasion to take Brother Apollos aside and correct his bad theology about baptism. And so you're beginning to see leadership in the church from women. And then what do you do in the Old Testament with Ruth and Esther and Deborah? In Galatians 3.28, Paul himself says, in Christ there is no male or female and so when I read that passage, I have to tell you, it's a little confusing. So what's the deal? There are times, church, when you have to distinguish between what is cultural and what is absolute. There are times that you have to discern what is contextual and what is universal. And we do that with the holiness code, don't we? In Leviticus, we have come to understand, even though we observe Leviticus, we've come to understand that the Jewish dietary regulations were a cultural way of differentiating the chosen ones from the pagans. 
But I, for one, am grateful that in the 21st century, we don't have to refrain from barbecue and country ham. You can still go to Loveless this afternoon and have your lunch. Thanks be to God. You must learn, and the Holy Spirit enables us to do this, to discern between what is culturally germane from what is universally true. This is what Paul meant in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing, that is interpreting, explaining the word of truth. And so for Paul, leadership is not only about doctrine, it's about behavior. How do we live it out? How do we live out the universal truth of God and Scripture in the culture in which we find ourselves? John Wesley, our spiritual founder, was known for his character and for his organization. In fact, the term Methodist, you remember, uh, that was penned on him as a student at Oxford, that was not a term of endearment. It was a term of criticism because the man seemed to have organization for everything he did. And so the name stuck. He is a Methodist. He knew about organization. He would organize his converts, those who came to Christ in his ministry, into bands and classes and small groups and he would invite them for the sake of accountability, unity, and maturity to be self-reflective, to be accountable. He had 22 questions that he invited these converts, these disciples, to ask themselves every day. I want to give you a sample. I'm not going to read all 22, but I think this is an interesting method for our own accountability in our own small groups. Number one, can I be trusted? Number two, am I honest in my acts and words or do I exaggerate? Number three, do the scriptures live in me today? Number four, do I give time for the scriptures to speak to me every day? Do I enjoy prayer with God? When did I last speak to somebody about my own faith? Have I disobeyed God in anything today? Am I overly jealous, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful towards others? Do I grumble and constantly complain? Is Christ real to me and in me? Now, I think today that we might say that those kinds of questions strike us as an invasion of privacy, but Mr. Wesley considered them an invitation to accountability. If you are a servant of God, and you are, you are accountable. And the truth is, whether we ever acknowledge God or not, we are accountable to God and to each other in the household of faith. Last word. We recently had a funeral here 
for a man named John Durham. Some of you know John. John was a pharmacist. He was a graduate, this is very unusual, he was a graduate of both Auburn and Alabama. That's unusual. I called him a crimson tiger, Charlie. Uh, if you crossed Albee and Al, you would get John Durham. He was 51. He had a three-month battle with cancer. He passed away on the week before Christmas, seven weeks ago. He and his wife, Wendy, of 16 years, or 18 years, excuse me, have two children, Evan and Abby Jane. He's 16, she's 12. Evan was confirmed right here at the altar four years ago, and I had the privilege of being his friend in faith. He's on the Ravenwood lacrosse team, which is the high school nearest to where we live. They have two state championships in the last few years. And I have to tell you, at the funeral, there were two or three pews back here on the right that were filled with teammates and coaches from Ravenwood Lacrosse. They dressed in their jerseys. They came for one reason, to support their friend and their teammate. After the benediction was over, we went out into the narthex and I watched every last one of them came up to Evan, shook his hand, hugged his neck, or those who wouldn't do that, chest bump to Evan, and said, we love you. I mentioned in the service that day that I understand better now why they are state champions. I've never seen them on the field, but I can tell you that off the field, they have attributes necessary for spiritual leadership. That's what a team is really all about. It's not just about technique and skill. It's about love. It's about support. It's about accountability. And in the behavior of those teenagers, I saw a beautiful picture of the church. The household of God I saw in them conduct becoming of a servant. I guess they have a coach or coaches. I'm sure they have mentors who have taught them that their play on the field depends on how they practice and their relationships one to another. I've decided that what's true of the Ravenwood lacrosse team is true of the church. And my prayer is that our conduct would be befitting of our confession for the glory of God and for the building up of the body. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.